Ephesians 1 verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. At the writing of this letter to the Ephesian church, it had been several years since Paul had lived and ministered among them. And from reports coming back to him from some of his beloved spiritual children, he believed that it was necessary for him to reconfirm some of the foundational doctrines that he had taught to them while he ministered there among them, especially as it related to who God the Father really was and even more especially who the Lord Jesus really was, this one whom they had, in whom they had placed their trust and faith. We really don't know how familiar the Gentiles there in Ephesus were with the God that their neighboring Jews held in such high esteem. It seems that they did, though, have at least some prior knowledge of him. But for the most part, the man Jesus, I believe, was completely unknown to most of the Gentile world. The Gentiles were more accustomed to their own ideas about gods. Mostly they believed in mythical beings who engaged themselves in more human-like activities and were generally independent of a central rule. There in Ephesus was this great statue of the goddess uh, Artemis that they worshipped and then other gods such as Zeus. But even with those, those gods that they called gods struggled with their own allegiances and often were found fighting amongst themselves for power. But listen, and we must always remember that those gods and others like them that might be in the various cultures today, they are not gods at all. The Apostle Paul expressed it in Galatians 4, verse 8, this way. He said, Formerly, when you did not know God, the Almighty God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Mythical beings such as those worshipped by the Greeks were really not gods at all. But they were just probably only strong demonic beings who controlled those regions. And that's spoken about there in verse 21, far above all the principality and power and might and dominion. Those Those words usually refer to fallen angels who have taken up positions of power here on the earth. And so these 
so-called gods were probably nothing more than those strong demons who ruled those regions. And with that background, the people of Ephesus probably had a difficult time rationalizing a god like the Almighty God, God the Father, and especially this one who was called His Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus was different from all that they had been accustomed to as gods. Jesus was a humble, suffering Savior who fought no wars. He led no insurrections. He had no political ambitions. Jesus just simply did not fit the mold of one that most people would want to call God. His only claim to glory was that His blood could wash away their sins and give them eternal life. And so here, through this letter written to the people of Ephesus, and then made available to people like us who would later read it, God is carefully explaining who He Himself is, and also who this man Jesus really is. And may I say that both fortunately and unfortunately, such words place you and me, and anyone else who reads it, within a difficult position. Because these words are truth in their purest form, they leave us, you and me, with a very, very important decision to be made. I say fortunate in that we can be eternally saved if we receive this truth, but unfortunate if we choose to reject it, leaving us without excuse and eternally lost. Here within these words, God provides us with all the truth that we need to know regarding Himself and His Son. And simply put, the choice is now ours to make and to whether to accept it or to reject it. Follow along with me again, if you will, and let's consider what God has to say here in these words. Now here, first of all, God tells His spiritual children <coughs> that He is praying for them that they will be able to have real spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the truth to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. What he's referring to here is the same words that you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where he says to us that with our natural minds, we're not going to understand. We cannot discern spiritual things. But through his enablement that he's speaking about here in these words, we're given the ability to spiritually discern matters. That's what he's praying for here. Now again, Paul intends to take his spiritual children back and reconfirm to them who God the Father is and who Jesus is. And may I say that that is something that we should also always be faithful to do, both for the sake of our own souls and for the sake of the dear ones that we minister to. While it may seem repetitive to say the same things over and over again, it is a necessary thing to do. It is a right thing for me to keep giving you the same gospel Sunday after Sunday. Billy Graham gave essentially the same message thousands of times over his years of ministry. And in 2 Peter we find Peter saying much the same thing, that it is a right thing to keep reminding and re-saying these things over and over again. Listen to these words. 
2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So then, for ourselves and for our loved ones and for anyone else who will listen, may we be diligent, may you be diligent, may I be diligent to always be remembering and reminding ourselves and saying over and over again who God really is and who the Lord Jesus really is. Most of us here in in our church are not burdened with the foolishness of belief such as those in the Ephesian church about mythical gods like Zeus and Artemis and others like that. But we do have confusion when it comes to beliefs similar to ours. Beliefs like those of the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons. And even those that extend closer into the borders of our Christianity, uh, denominations like Word of Faith that's in the news here lately, and other such churches like them that seem to severely limit their message to matters of prosperity and that name-it-and-claim-it type of promises. With God's name being bandied around so freely within their doctrines, many people have become confused. And they've wandered off into those errant teachings. With the Jehovah's Witnesses, our beliefs are close to theirs, even to the insistence of Christ being the Son of God in their church. They, yes, they freely state that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. And He is, it must be through Him and His blood alone that we are saved. But very subtly, Very subtly, the Jehovah's Witnesses have also insisted that Jesus himself not be God. That he is not divine. That he is not deity. And such is also true with with the Mormons. But folks, for many, many reasons, the Lord Jesus not only is, but also must be God. The most important reason being is for the sake of our salvation. Only... A pure and holy God could be so sinless as to pay the debt for our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Had Jesus only been a man, as the Jehovah's Witnesses and as the Mormons insist, he would have needed to have died for his own sins, making him insufficient to die for yours and mine. It's as simple as that. And yes, Jesus really was also a real man. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, as they witness to you, will stress that. But that was necessary to the purpose for which he was sent. And that is to be the Christ and to die and to pay the penalty for our sins. But to be sure, Jesus was not, was not just a man. He was also God incarnate, begotten and not created. When the Holy Spirit, listen, when the Holy Spirit begat Jesus within the womb of Mary, Jesus' embryo was the very essence, the very DNA of God the Father. Holy, pure, 
and without any vestige of a sin nature that's so common to an ordinary man's DNA. May I also address another area in belief that's common to some of these fringe doctrinal beliefs. And that is that Jesus was born just a man, but then became the Son of God. That's a very popular belief, even among some of our so-called Christian denominations. Listen, Jesus did not become the Son of God. He is and always has been the Son of God, co-equal member of the Trinity, equally co-existent with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from all times past and throughout all times future. And contrary to the beliefs of the Mormons and other church groups like them, neither God the Father nor Jesus His Son were just men who were able to work their way up into the position of God. And the Holy Spirit is not just a manifestation of God's thought processes. They, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are all three separate individuals, eternally coexistent, as one person forming the eternal trinity of God. And just because our minds can't fathom that sort of nature of being does not not diminish its truth. It simply is the way it is, and each of us must by faith accept it. But may we also take just another few moments and ponder God's unfathomable nature. His names in the scriptures often describe and testify as to who he is and what he can do. The first name that he is called in the book of Genesis is the name Elohim. And it's describing him as being the almighty God. But mysteriously, the name Elohim is a plural word. It's in a plural form. Meaning that God is not merely one person, but more than one giving the understanding that all three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, took part in creation. There in chapter 1, verse 2 of Genesis, we read where the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Then you read over in chapter 2, verse 4, where Yahweh, God the Father, created the heavens and the earth. And then also in John chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1, we read where Jesus created all things. And yes, that all adds up to what some would call contradiction. But it's not. They are not differing words at all. And though they can be confusing, they are, in their simplest form, still true. All three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, were eternally present. And all three took part in the creation of all the things that are in existence today. But even with all of that being true, Jesus, the Son of God, still had to come to earth and become a man so that he could become the Christ who would then suffer and die and take away all our sins. It's a completely unfathomable plan and circumstance, but again, still all the same, absolutely true. And to believe it, You and I must believe it in faith. A question. Why is it so necessary that you and I know about these things? Why is it important for you and me to be reminded over and over again 
Why was it so necessary for the Apostle Paul to continue to remind his Ephesian children of these attributes of the person of God and of Christ? Listen again to these words. Let me read them for us again. Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. Now, again, this is sanctification. This is where they are saved. And the Holy Spirit is coming in to enlighten their minds so that they can understand what they needed to about God the Father and God the Son. Verse verse 18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, above all power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This reminder about who God is and about all that has taken place in the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus was necessary because it appears that these Ephesian saints were digressing into those same errors in belief that had taken place with the Jews. And by the way, I believe that it is the one of the greatest enemies of our church today, of believers today. These Ephesian new believers were already digressing into the same condition that the Jews had settled into, and especially the scribes and the Pharisees. That of developing a system of beliefs, and then depending upon that system of beliefs for salvation. Again, I want to say, I believe that is one of the most prevalent dangers within our church today. And we're going to study about all of that and the depths that they were in over the next few weeks in chapter 2 especially. Here God is relaying and reestablishing the groundwork for the faith that they began with here some several years earlier by bringing the focus back from a system of beliefs and behaviors back to the person of God the Father and to the person of Jesus, His Son. Salvation, listen, and eternal life can never be gained through adherence to a system of beliefs and behaviors. Some weeks back, I spoke on precepts before practice. You and I have to understand where our salvation comes from. And we have to be able to articulate that if we're going to go out and witness that to others. If we're going to share with our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren about how salvation will take place in their lives, you and I are going to have to understand the precepts first. And it is not to simply go to church on Sunday. Salvation and eternal life can never be gained through adherence to a system, a system of beliefs and behaviors. Salvation and eternal life is wholly, wholly dependent upon faith in the very person of God the Father and the person of God the Son. And you and I must also be diligent in remembering these things ourselves. 
or else you and I will settle back into that condition. Because sometimes, after we've been a believer for a number of years, the fervor of our Christianity begins to descend into being old hat to us. There's a verse in Scripture that says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Our zeal for Christ dulls, and we attend church on Sunday often because we just know that we ought to. And yes, we do believe and we're saved, but just like those scribes and those Pharisees, our zeal is more for the principles of the Christianity that we believe in than for the person of Christ himself. And that's when we need to do as the Apostle Paul has done here. We need to go back and to remind ourselves and to remind all of our spiritual children who will listen about the same things that the Apostle Paul is reminding his spiritual children about. That God the Father is the Almighty God and that salvation and eternal life can only come through an intimate relationship with the person of Jesus, His Son. Yes, we should have good attendance at church. And we should go to Bible studies. And we should have private devotional times with the Lord. But those things alone will never sustain our salvation. Our diligence must be to the very person of God the Father and the very person of His Son Jesus. It's the only way to be one with Him. And it can only be one way. It's the way that Jesus was expressing there. You'll recall when this Pharisee came up and asked Him, what is the greatest commandment? What should I be doing? And Jesus said to him that you must personally love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And that's what you and I ought to be expressing to ourselves over and over, daily. You and I must personally love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. There and there alone is where salvation and sanctification lies. Let me close with these words about the Lord Jesus. They're from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Being found in the appearance as a man, he, the Lord Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.